Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 72 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Our sponsors this week are our friends over at Catholic Balm Co. The springtime facial hair ought to be looking pretty good right about now, but there's never a bad time to smell nice for your lady friends anyway, so head over to catholicbalm.co to check out their great variety of products, especially if you're looking to support an awesome small business. And be sure to enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout to get 10% off your entire order. So once again, that's catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring the Popecast. Well, our Pope this week was startlingly good for a Renaissance pontiff. He didn't use his power to elevate all of his greedy nephews. He began as a monk and never really forgot it. And he worked so hard and so much that he could have coined the phrase, I can sleep when I'm dead. This week on the Popecast, it's the greatest Pope you've never heard of. Number 227, Pope Sixtus V. Felice Peretti di Montalto was born on December 13, 1521 in the little town of Gratamare on Italy's Adriatic coast, the son of a gardener. His father, Pierre Gentile, apparently harbored the strange ambition that he was to be the father of a pope, which is one thing if you're a Roman senator, but another thing if you're a humble family from a small town. Nonetheless, as Count Alexander Hubner writes in his excellent 19th century work, The Life and Times of Sixtus V, by the way, we'll be referring to this a lot this episode because it is such a treasure trove, he said, quote, Infallible signs, he said, made him certain of the fact, and having on one occasion dreamt that the first child his wife would conceive would be a pope, he no longer doubted the high destiny of the little boy that came into the world on the feast of St. Lucy on Friday, December 13, 1521, at 16 hours. He called him Felice, wishing thereby to note the good fortune which was to greet his son. In the family, it was an accepted belief that the young boy was to be a pope, and when his young sister asked a Bayaco of the passerby, which custom in Italy does not necessarily indicate beggary, she never failed to add, Felice will give it to you back. End quote. At the age of nine, Felice joined the conventual Franciscan order in Montalto, the town of his family's origin, and the monastery in which his uncle resided. He became a novice at twelve, making vows for the first time, and taking on the name of Fra Felice, or Friar Felix, translated. He undertook philosophical and theological studies for the next decade or so, traveling to different convents at various points for his education, and near the end of that time was ordained a deacon at the age of 20 in 1541. It was around this time that Fra Felice earned himself a reputation for his preaching, such that over the next many years he was highly sought after by Franciscan convents to preach during Advent, Lent, and other major feast days. As Hubner writes, quote, so certain were they of the prodigious effect which his ever-flowing eloquence, his numerous and energetic quotations, which suited the times, would produce on the people. End quote. Hubner goes on to describe the young friar's audacity and nerves of steel. Quote, Never stopped by worldly considerations, he attacked men and things, even the mightiest, if he thought they failed in their duty. End quote. Even kings and emperors weren't safe from his fiery words, and it started to get the attention, in a good way, thankfully, of several high-profile cardinals and notable churchmen who found themselves in attendance to hear Fra Felice preach during Lent of 1552, when he was 31 years old. Men like Cardinal Michel Ghisleri, the future Pope St. Pius V, Cardinal Carafas, soon to be Pope Paul IV, and the great future saints Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, and St. Philip Neri. 
were among those who were, to quote Huebner again, struck by the ardent spirit which moved him and was visible in his speech, in his manner, in the young monk's looks, in the exuberance of his diction, in the solid science of which he was possessed, the purity of the religion that distinguished him, the spirit of the reaction which moved him. They recognized in him the man that belonged to them by right, and promised to take him in hand, to make him what they succeeded in doing, one of the great reformers. Hence dates his fortune. From that time, Fra Felice lived in the intimacy of men of the highest rank. End quote. And so began Fra Felice's somewhat meteoric rise, likely not sought out by him, despite the family jokes about him being destined for Peter's chair. But they were nevertheless well earned. As a man, Felice was known to be as intense as his preaching, which was mostly good, but not always. He was apparently a bit of a workaholic, rarely sleeping, and could easily be carried away by anger or overzealousness at times. But he was without doubt a just and driven man who knew what he wanted, and he made sure to care for his family in the measure that he was able. Throughout his thirties, Fra Felice was enlisted with the task of overseeing all of his order's convents, paying special attention to reform efforts by rooting out lukewarm or idle monks, insisting that only those wishing to adhere strictly to the rule of their order were welcome. Despite being admired and respected by the order's head honchos in Rome, Fra Felice was instead actually seen as cruel and severe by many in the convents themselves, the worst of which came from the great convent of Frari in Venice, where he was opposed to such a degree that he actually willfully resigned and voted in all humility for his primary opposition to be elected rector in his stead. And speaking of that enemy, Felice's character was such that even when the former was convicted of various crimes and sent to Rome to pay for them, the good monk, the future pope, negotiated his adversary's pardon. And it apparently was this act that in particular got the attention of the future sainted Pope Pius V. Here's Huebner again, quote, The Christian heroism of Fra Felice was much praised, and henceforth Cardinal Gisleri, who had long been his protector, showed him signal marks of his friendship, end quote. Felice was assigned to be an inquisitor in Venice for a time, and after a few years was recalled to Rome to serve as the number two, the vicar general of his order, before being tapped by Pope Pius IV to venture to Spain to reel in the Archbishop of Toledo, and with three other future popes, no less. Joining him on that trip was Cardinal Buoncampagni, who would become Pope Gregory XIII a decade or so later, Monsignor Aldebrandini, later Clement VIII, and a close collaborator of the future Sixtus V, and Monsignor Castagna, known to us now as the shortest reigning pope in history, Sixtus's immediate successor, Pope Urban VII. The trip, among many other things, was the start of a years-long feud between Fra Felice and Cardinal Buoncampagni, the soon-to-be Gregory XIII. History recalls that the two didn't care much for each other, but the cardinal at any rate made sure to leverage his rank as much as possible on the long journey, making the respected monk walk in the back of the entourage with the mules when there weren't enough horses to go around. Admittedly, the two were polar opposites in every way, including in their ability to lead, so one can imagine the cardinal's ego feeling threatened by a humble friar. But that said, Hubner notes that Felice, quote, who could with greater ease forgive big offenses than little ones, conceived toward Boncampagni, who had nothing in common with his ardent nature, a profound and invincible aversion, end quote. Anyways, the group of budding pontiffs ended up being called back to Rome somewhat prematurely, once word of Pius IV's death in 1565 reached them. Once they had returned to the Eternal City, Fra Felice was surprised by the news that his friend and the man who had chosen him as his confessor, Cardinal Gisleri, had been newly enthroned as Pope Pius V. 
Pius V immediately made him Bishop Peretti for the first time, and four years hence made him a cardinal. His salary, by the way, despite being referred to as the poor cardinal's dish, was still around seven times the average Italian salary of the day. By comparison, that's like a person today making over $300,000 a year if the average American household income is forty to 50000 Those six years of Pius V's papacy were golden for the man who now styled himself Cardinal Montalto, shedding the name Peretti in favor of honoring his homeland. How magnificent it must have been to witness the joy of the saintly pope as he was given the news of Christian victory at the Battle of Lepanto, and to otherwise be such a close advisor to the man who would become the last pope to be given the halo for nearly 400 years. Fun fact, Pope St. Pius X was the next sainted pope. There's, there's some blesseds and servant of gods in there, but I digress. Hubner writes of Pius's final moments, quote, feeling that his end was near, Pius V called him to his bedside, and Montalto was enabled to assist at one of the most touching and grandest spectacles, the death of a saint. After Pius V died, Gregory XIII was chosen to reign next, and apparently, still salty about their tiff from years before, relegated Cardinal Montalto to proverbial mule-walking once more, all but excluding him from the public life of a cardinal for the entirety of his 13-year papacy. But despite likely initially being annoyed at being sidelined, Cardinal Montalto quickly turned instead to those favorite things that he surely had wished to have more time doing anyway, collecting and commissioning art, translating and editing great books like the works of St. Ambrose, and building beautiful monuments of various kinds. He was called in those days the Hermit of Via Peretti, referring to the name of his country home, and Hubner paints a stark picture of this forced calm before the storm, the exile of a man so used to vigorously working at reform of people and processes. Quote, Cardinal Montalto was a martyr before becoming a hero. He, the former inquisitor, one of the principal actors, though one little before the public in the great religious movement of the day, which had monopolized his thoughts and still filled his soul, now devoted his time to literary studies, to watching workmen, or planting trees. Ideas of religious reform seemed to fly away from him. He was put on one side in all that related to public business, owing to the sovereign's dislike, the pope's dislike, to petty rivalries and his own failings. They were faults of character, the most difficult to avoid, and the bitterest to expiate, since they became apparent and produced a remorse only when it was too late to repair the evil to which they gave rise. His position was likewise due to those circumstances against which the will of man is impotent when the man is weak, but not otherwise insurmountable when met by such qualities as those which Montalto possessed, belief in his convictions, clearness of judgment, and the lightness of a well-fortified soul. End quote. When he was elected Pope, Hubner writes that the change in Montalto's personage was, quote, as if the captive eagle had suddenly left his cage and spreading his wings had flown into space, end quote. It was apparently such a truly stark before and after contrast that history has actually blossomed this into a rather ridiculous myth of Cardinal Montalto hoodwinking the world by coming to the conclave on crutches, feigning illness and infirmity, and then tossing the crutches aside upon his election. In reality, the comparison likely started as a symbolic one, given how he was both cast off by Gregory XIII and how he exhibited such intense energy and vigor thereafter for his five-year pontificate. In reality, he was just an ordinary man who happened to live an ordinary life as a monk, quietly serving in the way he'd been called by God, and in living that ordinariness with great faithfulness, he ended up exalted to the highest echelon of the church's life. 
Gregory XIII died on April 10th, 1585, and when the conclave began a week or so later, it took only four days for the cardinals to tap Cardinal Montalto as the next successor of St. Peter, showing how much he was admired by the other red hats. He chose the name of Sixtus V, styling himself after the prior Sixtus, who bore many similarities to Montalto. Sixtus IV had come from a poor family as well, was a respected scholar from a young age, and also was a Franciscan before being elected himself a century earlier. The Catholic Encyclopedia calls Sixtus, quote, a born ruler, especially suited to stem the tide of disorder and lawlessness which had broken out towards the end of the reign of Gregory XIII, end quote. In describing his appearance at the time he was revealed to the world as the new pope, Hubner writes, Sixtus V did not appear to be 65 years of age. He was of ordinary height, somewhat bent, and this made him look smaller than he really was. His head, which was comparatively large, sank rather between two broad shoulders. His forehead was high and wrinkled, arched and tufted eyebrows shaded two small brown but brilliant eyes. A change constantly came over his expression, not over his features, which seemed to be rigid and immovable. Calmness, kindness, and tenderness, then suddenly severity, anger, then again serenity played alternately upon his countenance. It was like the storm which threatens, which roars and bursts, but calms down at once. His complexion was swarthy, his cheeks high-colored, his cheekbones very prominent, a characteristic of the Sclavonian race. His hair and long auburn and bushy Franciscan beard were growing gray. Soon they were to become entirely so. His health was excellent, and the slight infirmity with which he was troubled had, according to Messer Aurelio Stagni, the fashionable doctor, no serious character. His whole person struck the spectator at first, frightened him almost the next moment, but those who examined him closely were soon reassured. He was the type of a monk, with the difference that he was born to command, whereas a monk always obeys. He was attractive, though possessing no charms. He captivated, but did not please, was imposing, but not majestic. And though he had nothing of the sovereign or of a prince in him, he could not be mistaken for anything but the master. The people understood him at once, for there are certain revelations which everyone accepts and believes in, though few can explain them. End quote. Despite being in relatively good health, Sixtus V would last just five years in the chair of St. Peter, but accomplished a ton nonetheless. Pope Sixtus V was undoubtedly one of the most consequential popes of his era, and laid the groundwork for many things that each of us actually enjoy today, but nearly all of his efforts, with the exception of his building projects, of course, necessary though they may have been, weren't exactly the stuff of action movies, and so history has had a tendency to overlook him. His first priority was putting down a massive population of brigands and bandits who had overrun Rome and surrounding areas, estimated at anywhere between 12,000 and 27,000 at their peak, and bringing law and order back to the region. In fact, H.W. Crocker, in his excellent book Triumph, recounts uh, rather colorfully the, this portion of Pope Sixtus's reign. He says, quote, In Pope Sixtus V, the man and the hour were met. The church gained another towering pontiff, and the mafiosi found a pope who was bishop, judge, and executioner. If anyone doubts the church's support for the death penalty, they should read the record of Sixtus V. If Judge Roy Bean was the law west of the Pecos in the American Wild West, Pope Sixtus V was the law of central Italy, who proclaimed, While I live, every criminal must die. Every available noose was filled. Noli me tangere, touch me not, became a papal inscription. And for once, Italy's roadways were safe from brigandage. Like I said, colorful. <laughs> anyway, next in line was tidying up the papal treasury, which was all but empty by the time he arrived in Peter's chair. 
His plan to replenish the papal coffers was to economize almost everywhere and bump taxes a fair bit, but his lone exception was spending great sums to beautify and equip the Eternal City for the centuries to come. The Catholic Encyclopedia has the full list. Quote, he built the Lateran Palace, completed the Quirinal Palace, restored the Church of Santa Sabina on the Aventine, rebuilt the Church and Hospice of San Girolamo de Scavoni, enlarged and improved the Sapienza, founded the Hospice for the Poor near the Ponte Sisto, built and richly ornamented the Chapel of the Cradle in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, St. Mary Major, completed the Dome of St. Peter's, raised the obelisks of the Vatican, of St. Mary Major of the Lateran and of Santa Maria del Popolo, restored the columns of Trahan and Antoninus Pius, placing the statue of St. Peter on the former and that of St. Paul on the latter erected the Vatican Library with its adjoining printing office and that wing of the Vatican Palace which is inhabited by the Pope, built many magnificent streets, erected various monasteries, and supplied Rome with water, the Aqua Felice, which he brought to the city over a distance of 20 miles, partly underground, partly on elevated aqueducts, end quote. You know, just a few things. In addition to his building efforts, though, Sixtus was also responsible for fixing the maximum number of cardinals to 70, a shout-out actually to the Old Testament, and a rule that actually remained until the 1960s. He was very nearly beyond reproach on the nepotism front, too. No mean feat in those days, with the only exception being his nephew, Alessandro, who was named a cardinal in one of Sixtus's eight consistories, those uh, events of creating new cardinals. Thankfully, Alessandro bucked the trend of other cardinal nephews, conducting himself honorably and not leveraging his influence to pad his own pockets. Sixtus also overhauled the entire Roman Curia, doubling the number of congregations, right, offices devoted to specific areas of church life, basically, in order to further delegate the Pope's work and make it more efficient. Just kidding, there's no such thing as efficiency in Rome. But Sixtus sure tried. One of this Pope's only major contributions in the spiritual realm of the church came in his legislation surrounding contraception and abortion, with his 1588 papal bull Ephrenatum, Sixtus declared that the canonical penalty for performing or seeking an abortion was excommunication, regardless of the stage of development of the child in utero, simply because it qualified as a homicide, strictly speaking, the killing of a human being. This was a development from prior centuries, given that theologians weren't certain on when insolment occurred in the gestation process, and so it struck many as severe, at least up to that point in history. Abortion was always and forever bad, but when was it actually a human being versus when was it killing an organism? So that was kind of what, what was at play. But in fact, the document, at any rate, would only remain in force for three years when Gregory XIV, after Sixtus V's death, issued a new document that instructed church officials, quote, where no homicide or no animated fetus is involved, not to punish more strictly than the sacred canons or civil legislation does, end quote. On the political front, Sixtus V was nothing if not a dreamer. He wanted to do everything from blasting the Turks off the face of the earth to conquering Egypt to never having to talk to any Protestant princes ever, and he really didn't get any of that, long story short. He renewed the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth I and agreed in principle to help fund the Spanish Armada, only willing to pony up the dough, though, once Philip II's fleet landed in England. Bummer for the Spaniards, but at least the Pope saved some cash there. The final days of Pope Sixtus V were unfortunately wrapped up in squabbles between those kings, in negotiations with both King Henry III of France and King Philip II of Spain, the two primary Catholic powers of Europe. Beginning in the spring of 1590, the Pope's health began to visibly decline. A man of strong constitution and iron will to the end, 
His own obstinacy to take care of his illnesses with something other than a few extra glasses of wine ended up doing him in before his 70th birthday. His final days were as poetic as they were tragic. His death seemed to be sped along by the bad news of both a famine that had sprung up in 1590 in and around Rome, and the resurgence of the same brigandage he had so decisively put down years earlier, even coming so far as to be seen at the gates of Rome. And these evils clouded an otherwise landmark papacy. Sixtus remained a diligent worker, however, right to the end. In the week leading up to his death, he was still taking meetings from ambassadors and influential figures from both Spain and France. To the French congregation in particular, as Huebner recounts, Sixtus, quote, complained as usual of the Spaniards, and said that Philip II, who intended to have himself proclaimed God, would meet with the fate of Nebuchadnezzar, and hoped that Henry, king of France, might be converted, end quote. The Pope became confused in his speech shortly thereafter, result of being feverish, and reportedly fell into such a bad way on the night of Tuesday, August the 21st, that his closest advisor, Cardinal Aldebrandini, again remember, the future Clement VIII, was afraid for about two hours that the Pope would not survive the night. But survive he did, six more days in fact, and apparently he got up the next morning, met with various dignitaries once more, following a breakfast of melon and a few glasses of wine. On the 23rd, he was able to say Mass and preside for several hours over the regular proceedings of the Inquisition, but again fell terribly ill that night. He finally relented in his workload the next day, Friday the 24th, and Huebner writes that his doctors, quote, deemed the state of his holiness to be dangerous, rather on account of the impossibility of making him follow any diet than of the gravity of the malady from which he was suffering, end quote. Translation, <laughs> the Pope was a stubborn old mule, and that was why the doctors were having trouble in saying that he was in danger of death. Not because he was actually really sick. But at any rate, he passed the remainder of the weekend without much incident. But toward the end of Sunday, the 26th, the eve of his death, Sixtus V was in tremendous pain enough that he finally allowed the doctors to do with him what they wished. And because it is so beautifully written, Huebner has the rest. Quote, his strength was rapidly declining. Mass was said in his room, and Donna Camilla, entering without being announced, embraced her brother, and remained crying near his bedside for many hours. On the following morning, Monday, August 27th, after spending a restless night, he asked to hear Mass. During the elevation of the host, he tried to kneel, which he could only do with the aid of an assistant. Towards twelve, he fell into a swoon. At one time, it was thought that he was dead, and Donna Camilla, Cardinals Justiniani, Pinelli, Aldebrandini, and his confessor were called all in haste. Young Montalto, Cardinal Alessandro Montalto, who was heartbroken, fell to the ground. The attacks were several times renewed. At intervals, the sick man rallied, groaned, and opened his eyes to shut them immediately after. They administered to him the sacrament of the extreme unction, and at seven in the evening, while a violent thunderstorm was breaking over Rome, Pope Sixtus V breathed his last. End quote. And so ended the life of one of the greatest popes that most likely have never heard of. As far as the legacy of Pope Sixtus V, we need look no further than some of the greatest monuments in Christendom, the Dome of St. Peter's Basilica. It was finished because of him, the Lateran Palace and the Vatican Library. But we also remember him more practically as likely being the last Pope Sixtus ever. Because, I mean, who's going to voluntarily choose to be called Sixtus the Sixth? Well, that's a wrap on the story of the greatest Pope you've never heard of. 
We really hope you enjoyed this episode, especially if you're a new listener. And on that note, if you do enjoy the podcast, new or old, we'd be honored if you'd share it with a friend or family member, whether it's posting on social media, uh, texting it to a friend. It obviously helps to spread the word about the show, but Lord knows more people than ever could use a little bit of historical perspective these days. And a thank you again to all of our patrons, without whom we could do none of this. If you'd like to support the podcast too, helping us to cover our production costs, but also getting some great podcast swag in the process, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash the podcast. That's patreon.com slash the podcast. And as we head out today, remember, these are strange times we live in, but no stranger than an age's past. Until next time. <laughs>